Father, we need you. Um, Lord, that isn't just something we say because uh, it plays well in a room like this because this is a church. We say that because that is the absolute reality in which we live. We need you. Father, if we are going to be changed today, if the heaviness and hardness and tragedy of our lives is going to be addressed, if we're gonna leave with real and abiding joy, if we're gonna enter into the rest of this community for the rest of this week, it will only be as you do so in our lives with great power. And so, Lord, we're asking you, speak to us today. Make your word uh, so, so clear to our hearts and minds and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that believe and obey what you would have to say. Father, I, I pray not only for ourselves, I pray for the work of Christ in this community, God. We know that the other churches that love Jesus and preach his gospel are not our competitors, they're our partners. And so I pray for Pastor Paul Young at Glory of God Anglican Church in Coco. Thank you that he knows the gospel and declares the gospel. Thank you that they have a desire as a church to be your hands and feet in their community. And I pray that today those that gather as that church would know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I, 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 I am reminded that this isn't the only community either. And I pray for those in the Houston area throughout Texas, Father, that are experiencing not only the initial brunt of a hurricane, but also the aftermath of flooding and rain. And Lord, I would ask that your body would be raised up, including us, to be your hands and feet, to love them well. Father, would you, would you give comfort to those who are facing what feels to them like the loss of everything? And Lord, I pray that you would come into their, their tragedy and shine with comfort and hope uh, as only you can. Lord, I pray that you would do a work among us today. We need you. We just genuinely do. And we thank you that we have you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter four. Ruth chapter four. This is the last uh, message that I'll be preaching on the book of Ruth. And I've just got to tell you, I have thoroughly enjoyed our study on the book of Ruth. I was telling somebody this last week uh, that I'm tempted to just start back in Ruth one next week and do this all over again, because I'm certain we haven't gotten everything. I'm not going to do that. Uh, some of you are actually afraid of that reality, but I, I am so grateful for the truths that we've seen in the book of Ruth, and I'm really, really excited about what God has been showing me this morning to share with you from Ruth chapter four. Um, I, some of you know this, uh, this television show. I was reminded of it this week. It's a, a show called This Is Us, and it was a big hit last year. Many of you watched it. Many of you uh, were addicted to it, actually, and, and we've got a support group for that starting this fall, but anyhow, that's not the point, but the, the story This Is Us, it's the the story that traces this family and it goes between present day time and flashbacks about the history of this family and the story shows how that family came to be and I was reminded of that first because I love that title and second because that dynamic really is a very true dynamic for us as God's people when we come to his word. What we're seeing here in the book of Ruth is not just a flashback, a story about a man named Boaz and a woman named Naomi and her daughter daughter-in-law whose name is Ruth. What we're actually seeing is this is the story of us. 
This is us. As a matter of fact, while you have your hand there in Ruth 4, you can maybe mark that. I want to show you a couple of verses that I think you need to to see. Go to Romans chapter 15 really quickly. Before we read in Ruth 4, I want to show you Romans chapter 15. And if you struggle to find Romans 15, I'm going to get there and you can just listen to me read. But um, you may want to look at this in your Bibles. Romans chapter 15. And I want to show you what the Apostle Paul and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, says to us as the people of God here today. In verse 4, Paul writes and says, For whatever was written in former days... Whatever was written in former days. He's talking about the Bible. So he's saying all of the Bible that was written thousands of years ago, this very passage was written 2,000 years ago, basically. And he says, even the stuff that was written before what I'm writing to you, all of the stuff, how much of the stuff? All of it, whatever. He says, whatever was written as part of the word of God in former days, look at this, was written for our instruction that this is written for us, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. This, this book of Ruth was written thousands of years ago. And do you know who it was written for? It was written for us. When we go to Ruth, we go to Ruth because this is us, not just some antiquated story. And how is it that those old writings written thousands and thousands of years ago in a galaxy far, far away, how is it that those writings have something to say to us? Flip back a little bit uh, nearer the beginning to the book of John, just a couple of books away. Go to John chapter five, and Jesus actually tells us a very powerful truth about the scriptures that were written many thousands of years ago. It's not just the story of us. It's not just that this is us. These aren't just moral plays that we get a, uh, a, 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 a allegory for moral living and there's something deeper here. Look at John chapter five and I'm gonna read verse 39. He's speaking to the religious crowd who was really well steeped in the Old Testament writings, but they missed the point entirely. And in John chapter five, he's confronting the fact they've totally missed the point. And in verse 39, he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you've missed the point because here's the point. And it is they that bear witness about me. Do you see that? Jesus says, listen, you guys get into the scriptures and you think that there's life there and you don't even realize these scriptures testify about me. Who's the me there? What's his name? Jesus. So here's the story. This is the reason I bring you to this. Romans 15 says that all of these scriptures written in old time were written for us. They're written for you. And Jesus tells us in John chapter five that those very scriptures testify about him. So when we come to the Old Testament scriptures, one of the right things that we do as we study Old Testament scriptures is we ask this question, what does this teach me about Jesus? 
You guys realize that? It says, what is this teaching me? What is this telling me? What is this showing me about Jesus? And so this morning, I want our study of the end of Ruth to be all about Jesus. What we're gonna see is we're gonna see how Boaz, this sort of hero of the story in the book of Ruth, is a mirror who reflects to us things, truths about Jesus Christ. And and let me just catch you up a little bit on this story if you've missed it. There was a woman named Naomi. She and her family were Israelites and the nation of Israel went through a deep time of famine. And while they were in a deep time of famine, Naomi and her husband, whose name was Elimelech, now all of you pregnant women I know now have a name for your unborn child, Elimelech, Naomi and Elimelech go to this nation called Moab. They're unfaithful to God's covenant and they don't trust he's gonna take care of their needs and in their disbelief and in their disobedience, they go to Moab. And while they're in Moab, their two sons marry Moabite women. So they're compounding these mistakes. The Moabites were enemies of God and they hated the worship of God. So they were enemies of God's people. And yet these two boys in this disobedient family marry these unbelieving Moabite women. Well, in an amazing turn of events, Elimelech and the two sons die there in Moab. And Naomi is left totally destitute in a foreign nation. While she's working out in this field, she hears a story that God had restored the fortunes of Israel, that famine was gone. And so Naomi decides, I've got nothing here in Moab. I'm going back to Israel. Maybe I'm gonna be able to find some food there. So she starts to go back to Israel and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, decide to come with her. Well, she turns around and says, hey, I've got nothing for you. I've got nothing for you. Stay here in Moab. Go and serve your gods. Leave me alone. I've got nothing for you. In other words, she says, you guys are just too much trouble for me. I've had enough trouble in my life. I don't need more. Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah stays back in Moab. Ruth says, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna make a promise to you, Naomi. I, I will go with you and I will never leave you. Your people be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. She says, I'm I'm in it for the long haul. You can hate me. You can think I'm too much trouble. I'm sticking with you. They go back to Israel and they encounter the grace of this man named Boaz. And, And for the first moment in a long time, Naomi has this thing called hope because Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. And Naomi realizes this. God had made a law that if a man died and he left a widow without children, children, that the nearest relative of that man who was unmarried and had no children could marry her and preserve the inheritance and the family name of that family line through the marriage to that widow. And that, that process was called the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman, a relative, redeems or buys back a helpless, hopeless, destitute widow. Well, Boaz is eligible to be a redeemer. And we see that Naomi tells Ruth, hey, go to Boaz, ask him to redeem you. Let him know you're ready. You're not mourning over your dead husband anymore. You are ready to be redeemed and you don't want to just be redeemed. You want to be redeemed by him. We talked about that last week. And so what we see in this chapter four is that Boaz has said, to Ruth, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. But there's a relative who's nearer than I am. And so I'm going to go to him. I'm going to make it right. And so we see this redeemer named Boaz, and he's working in, in love for this widow named Ruth. And what we see in the redemption of Ruth is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see this. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Boaz is a good redeemer but Jesus is better. 
okay? So that's the point. What's the point this morning? Here it is. Boaz is a good redeemer, but Jesus is better. So I want to show you three ways in which Boaz is a good redeemer, and then I want to take you straight to Jesus and show you here's how Jesus is better. So let's go back to Ruth chapter four, and I'm going to start reading in verse one. Boaz has said, I'm going to go. There's a redeemer nearer than I am. I'm going to go. Look at verse one. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came. He came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he he turned aside and sat down. Now, really quickly, that word friend there is a word that we might translate so-and-so. It's a deliberate uh, kind of phrase. It's like yada, yada, whatever. This guy's name doesn't matter. The author here is actually saying, hey, listen, Boaz is a great guy. This other dude, he's not even worth mentioning, Okay, so that's what's happening here is, is the author saying, hey, I want to show you how good a redeemer Boaz is by highlighting this other clown isn't even worth giving you his name. All right, he says, listen here, friend, so-and-so, yada, yada, whoever you are, sit down. So he, he turned aside and sat down. Look at verse two. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Th- then he said to the redeemer, this other guy, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And look what the Redeemer says. I will redeem it. What? I thought Boaz was going to redeem, right? This guy hears the good news. Okay, so let's just stop right there. He hears this good news. Hey, man, just want to let you know, Elimelech had all kinds of land. His widow, Naomi, has come back. I need to tell you this. She's willing to release her rights to that land as his widow for someone who's going to redeem it. And I want you to know that you're the next in line. So so here's what's happening. There was a law that the nearest available bachelor, in a sense, could redeem the widow and all that she possessed if he was willing. And, uh, and, and Boaz goes to this guy, and he goes to this guy because even though Ruth came to him and Ruth said, I want you to marry me. I want to be redeemed by you. You're the one that I want, Boaz. Boaz says, that, that's not entirely right for me to do yet. He says, this isn't exactly right for me to do. The law of God says, I need, to, I need to go to the next in line, and I'm not the next in line. You see what Boaz is doing here? Boaz is fulfilling the law of God. And he's not just fulfilling the law of God. He's fulfilling the letter of the law and the heart of the law. Boaz actually starts with the most appealing part of this deal. Instead of going to the guy and saying, hey, there's this uh, ratty old widow who can't quite take care of herself. She's a, she's a bit of a heel, and she's been kind of dragging our workers down in the field, taken from some of my stuff, and, and she's ready to be redeemed. Boaz doesn't go that way. He says, hey, man, there's some property, and it's a big blessing, and it's available, if you, if you want it, it's available for you to have it. He's not, just, he's not just fulfilling the letter of the law. He's fulfilling the heart of it. He's loving his neighbor as himself. He said, I'm not gonna let you walk away and say, I didn't know there was land in this deal. Boaz is fulfilling the law. So that's our first point. Here's our first point. We have a redeemer. Our redeemer fulfills the law on our behalf. Yes. Now, you, now, you wanna know why that's a good deal? 
Here's why that's good news. The law of God is God's standard for how he is going to judge every man, woman, child. The law of God is filled with all kinds of commands that relate the holy nature of God toward people. And here's what you need to know. There's a summary of the law we know as the Ten Commandments, but that's not all of the law. There are laws for worship and how you are ceremonially clean and how you should live in relationship with other people. All kinds of laws in the first five books of the Bible that are summarized there in the Ten Commandments. And that law of God is the, the standard of holiness by which God is going to judge every man, woman, and child. So for instance, one of of those laws is the very first one. You shall have no other God before me. So anytime any man, woman, or child loves or wants something in a way they should love or want God, they've broken that commandment. Anytime you've ever lived without regard for God, you've lived as though you're your own man. You've been your own God in that sense. You've broken the first commandment. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Anytime you've been disrespectful in thought, word, or deed toward your mom and dad, you've broken the fifth commandment. You go all the way through, thou shalt not lie. Don't lie. Anytime you've said something that wasn't totally true, you broke that commandment. The, the last commandment, don't covet. Don't, don't look at something someone else has and look at it in a way where you wish it was yours, where you begin to want something uh, so deeply in your heart that you, you desire it above uh, rejoicing in the fact that someone else has it. That's covetousness. You've broken it. Here's the story. This is why this is such good news. That law in which God will judge every man, woman, and child, there's something you need to know about you. You've blown it. Right? I've blown it. If you're visiting this morning, you are gathering with a group of people who have blown it, whether they know it or not, or act like they know it or not. You guys get that? You've blown it. You've broken the law of God. You have not fulfilled God's law. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, his holiness. And and the bad news gets worse. That because God is a good and right judge, he will punish the brokenness of his law. The separation that God will allow is a separation for eternity because he cannot in his holy nature be in the presence of sin. And God's judgment will come on every man and woman who dies without having been made right with him. And we're all broken because we've broken the law. And his wrath, it says, we just read that verse earlier, that his wrath abides on us. But, but listen, listen, God made a way for us to be rescued to be bought back or redeemed from the brokenness of our sin. That's why God gave us Jesus. Jesus came so that he could live a perfect, sinless life that totally and completely fulfills the law of God on our behalf. And Jesus perfectly pleased God the Father. He lived the life you should have lived but could not live. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the wrath of God fell on Jesus. All of the penalty and punishment for your brokenness and sin fell on Jesus Christ so that not only is the principle of the law fulfilled in Jesus's life and obedience, the punishment of the law is fulfilled in Jesus's death and in God's wrath. Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. And you know what Romans chapter 10 says? Now Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You know what that means? That means that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you believe he lived the life, the perfect sinless life you can't live, and he died the death you should have died as a punishment for your sin, the law no no longer stands to condemn you. 
because you don't live anymore saying, my righteousness is found because I have kept the law. You don't say that anymore. You say, my righteousness is found because Jesus kept the law for me. Our Redeemer has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And you know one of the things that should produce in your heart? Incredible joy. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus because Jesus has made you completely and totally and fully accepted in God the Father. You know that? You're totally accepted. You know what that means? You know what that means? If you're trusting in Jesus, there will never, ever, ever be a day where God's condemnation falls on you. Because your good standing with God doesn't rest on what you've done or haven't done. Some of you are like me. You grew up in a, in a Christianity where you heard a lot about hell and wrath. Uh, you, you, you got this image of God who was this Honestly, he was a grumpy dad who just wanted you to keep it down in the other room uh, and you could never do enough to please that one, right? That, that you lived with the God that could never be pleased. And so you've grown up with a version of Christianity that says, I've never, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I, I'm not smart enough and doggone it, God doesn't like me. I had to borrow a phrase from Saturday Night Live. But you grew up with that. Here's what this means, that Jesus has fulfilled the law on your behalf. Your standing with God has nothing to do with what you've done or haven't done because righteousness doesn't come through the law. Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. The letter and the spirit. So your hope for righteousness isn't your record, it's your redeemer. Jesus. Isn't that good? Boaz is a good redeemer. Jesus is better because he's fully and completely, fully and completely fulfilled the law of God on your behalf, which means you're totally and completely accepted by God forever when you trust in Jesus. Praise Jesus for that. So that's the first one. Our Redeemer fulfills the law on our behalf. Let's let's keep reading here. So this Redeemer said, I'll redeem it because Boaz was was loving to him and told him the best part. But look at verse five. Boaz said, the day you buy the field, you do need to know this, bro. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so this guy finds out, oh, this isn't just a big piece of land I could purchase. There's a, a widow uh, who's from Moab of all places that comes along with the deal. And he begins to think, man, this Moabite woman would have to be the mother of my kids. And, and the name uh, that would be attached to all of my inheritance would include the name of her dead husband. He starts to think about it. Look what he says here in verse six. The Redeemer said, uh, never mind, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You hear that? He finds out Ruth is in the deal, the Moabite widow, the broken woman who can't take care of herself. He finds out that she's a part of the deal. He's like, deal's off. You realize what he's saying there? She's too much trouble. She's too much trouble. 
our redeemer, Boaz says, Boaz says I'll take her. I'll take her. Boaz says, she's, she's, she's not too much trouble for me. Our redeemer, our redeemer takes on broken and helpless people. Do you guys, here, here's the deal. When I was, when I was uh, first out of high school, I, I saved up to get my, the first car I bought. The first car I really got was a 1976 Buick Regal Primer Gray, incredible machine um, that dropped the transmission before I even got my license. So I never got to drive my first car. Um, the, the other car then though that I went to buy, I saved up my money and I bought a 1986 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. Some of you wonder, how did he get Emily? 1986 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. It was awesome. So I, I, I got that car, saved up my money. I buy it, I bite it. Um, I bite it, um, I bought it in, uh, in the middle of the winter. I am from Ohio, so that's, that's how we say things there. So I bide the car in the middle of the winter and, um, and it was, there was snow on the ground. It, it was incredible thought this car was just magical in some ways. It, it was magical uh, because it was, it was partly made of ice. Uh, most of the components were kept together by ice because by the time spring came and the snow melted, the car started to totally fall apart. I mean, just entirely fall apart. Everything in the car was held together by ice. I'd get in and it just would not go. Uh, it was an incredible experience. And, and so slowly over the next few months and years, every light on the dashboard came on. It was a beautiful little Christmas scene there, right there. Every time I drove, my Christmas lights were always on. I even tied a Christmas tree to the trunk of my car at one point in time, just to seal the deal. This is a Christmas car. Uh, The trunk stopped working, so every time I would stop at a stoplight, the trunk would fly up and bounce like that. I went ahead and tied a toolbox to the trunk lid, because I knew I would need tools to keep my car going, and it would keep my trunk lid down. Uh, It was just an incredible thing. Glove compartment wouldn't stay up. Leaked more oil than the Exxon Valdez. It was just an incredible piece of machinery from Detroit. So here I am, this car, and that car was, I loved that car. It was a great car, but over time, there's something that happened in me as I was just putting money and money after money that I didn't have as a college student into that car. There was this day where that car just, it became more trouble than it was worth. Just more trouble than it's worth. I I finally, I gave the car, I think I gave the car to my father-in-law who gave it to my brother-in-law who's here. You're welcome, buddy. Uh, I gave the car to my father-in-law as a sort of dowry uh, for for Emily. Um, I did it again. Um, Here's the deal. A lot of us uh, feel like we're that car. And, and we can't get over this fact that, that we're not too much trouble for Jesus. So some of you don't need to hear this, but many of you do need to hear this today. You have had the same struggle with sin for decades. The same patterns of brokenness. The over and over and over again pattern of why do I keep doing this? And you can't hardly bring yourself to pray. Have you ever had that feeling? I can't even, I can't face God like this because I can't even tell him I'm not gonna do this again because I'm pretty sure I will, I always have. You ever, you, am I the only one who, okay, I'm the only one who's done that. But let me just confess, I've done that and I have, there's this thing in me 
where I feel like that old car and, and, and all I can think of is there's this day that's coming when Jesus is going to say, that one's just too much trouble for me. I want you guys to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because I want you to see something that is just beautiful to me. For every one of you who have ever felt you're just too much trouble. For, for the grandparents uh, in our church that I, I talked with this last week and prayed with them about their grandson who's in prison, who, who's had multiple offenses over and over and over again, and he cannot believe the gospel because he can't believe that God's not fed up with him. For everyone who's like that, listen to this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, uh, look, at, look at verse 15. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save really good people. I, I, I don't even know what version you guys are reading, but I'm pretty sure it didn't say that. He came in to save sinners. And Paul says this, of whom I'm the foremost, I'm the worst you think your neighbor's bad? Paul was worse, okay? Look what it says. Why would God do that with a guy like Paul who's the worst? Look at verse 16. I received mercy for this reason. Here's why. Here's why God would do that with a terrible guy, a rotten guy. For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his, look at this, look at this, his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe. That's those who were coming to believe after me. That's you. That Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to you in this room who are going to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I am the worst of the worst, bro. He writes a chapter in Romans chapter seven, and he says this, the things I don't wanna do are the things I do. The things I'd love to do are the things I don't do. I am a wretched man. Anybody ever feel like that? He says, I'm the worst of the worst. But here's why Jesus would show me mercy as an example to all of the people like you who would feel like you're too much trouble for Jesus. And he would give you an example among the worst of the worst sinners that he has something that you can't even conceive and it's this perfect patience. How much patience does people have for a knucklehead like you? How much patience does Jesus have for a knucklehead like you? The perfect amount. In Christ, for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, God's not fed up with you. He's not disappointed with you. He's not at the end of his rope with you. He's not frustrated. He's not unnerved. He's not tearing his hair out. He is not running out of patience. Jesus has perfect patience for broken people. Boaz was a good redeemer. He would take on a broken, hurting widow. Jesus is better because he has perfect patience for broken people like us. And all the broken people said, amen, right? Amen. Let's go, to, let's go back to Ruth for, let's finish up with one more thing. Just so you know, I had seven things um, that I was gonna show you from Ruth four. I narrowed it down to three. You can thank me later. Let's go, let's pick up here in verse seven. <clears throat> now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming 
and exchanging to confirm a transaction. Uh, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. Isn't that awesome? Hey man, you want this car? Yeah, uh, hold on. There you go. Signed, sealed, delivered. Right? He's got this sandal. So I know we're wondering, what's the deal with the sandal? I was going to make this a point. It was a really cool one. Uh, didn't have time for it. Uh, we have a redeemer who guarantees what he's going to do. Um, that was going to be the point. The sandal was this. There was land that was associated with this deal, right? And the sandal would represent every place that you would step. And when this redeemer gives the sandal away, he's saying, I'm giving away, I'm giving away my right to this land. And and when the redeemer, when Boaz takes that sandal, it's him saying, I give this away. Boaz is saying, I guarantee you, I'm gonna buy it. That's what he's saying there. The sandal represents that land. I'm gonna buy everything and and Ruth along with it. So that's what the sandal is there for. Look at verse eight. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The Redeemer guarantees I'm gonna I'm going to do it. I bought it back. And I wanted to go down this road too. The beauty of being Christ's. He bought us. We're his. We belong to him. Now let's keep on going. He says, then all the people who are at the gate, verse 11, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel and many, many children and, and posterity. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, who was his ancestor, who uh, he had been uh, descended from, who Tamar bore from Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. Look at this, look at this. Who did the women say that to? Naomi. The women said, blessed be the Lord, look at this, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. We have a redeemer who doesn't just redeem us for us. So when you read that passage, you should think, I thought Boaz was redeeming Ruth, but Ruth's redemption wasn't just for Ruth. Naomi was redeemed through the redemption of Ruth. And God, by his mercy in Jesus, doesn't just redeem us for us, he redeems us for others. Let me, let me just share a really quick story with you. In 1854, there was a, a, a Sunday school teacher who had a burden for a young man who was in his Sunday school class. And that young man was 17 years old. He was working in a shoe store. And so this this Sunday school teacher goes into the shoe store and he says, son, I am just so burdened about your relationship with Jesus. I don't think you take the gospel seriously. And so they sat down together in that shoe store and that Sunday school teacher shared the gospel of Christ with that young man. That young man believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Sunday school teacher's name was Edward Kimball, and the young man's name was Dwight L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute. 
Moody was a powerful preacher in the 1800s, and it's estimated that he preached to over 100 million people, crowds of 10 to 20,000, before there were microphones to amplify his voice. This powerful preacher, and he went on to influence millions of people for the sake of the gospel. One of the people that that Moody influenced was a man named F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer was a pastor in London who was a, a really intellectual guy who studied the Bible as a cultural Christian, but he had no focus on Jesus whatsoever. Well, Moody interacts with this guy's life and he reignites a passion for Jesus to be the center of Christianity. Well, F.B. Meyer and the influence of Moody gets this passion for the gospel of Jesus and is redeemed. And Meyer goes on then to influence a man named J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman is saved by the gospel of Jesus and influenced by the life of uh, F.B. Meyer. And Chapman becomes this evangelist who preaches to thousands and thousands of people. And one day there's a baseball player who hears about this evangelist. He goes to the preaching meeting and, and, and he, he receives Jesus Christ. That baseball's pl- baseball player's name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday is this amazing evangelist in America and he travels around and starts these Bible studies in men's leagues. Well, through the influence of Billy Sunday, there was a man who got saved and his name was Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham became a preacher who was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through the ministry of Mordecai Ham, he set up this this revival in a city uh, of Charlotte, North Carolina. And in 1934, Mordecai Ham's preaching in Charlotte, a full 80 years after D.L. Moody receives Christ through the influence of the Sunday school teacher. And in 1934, under the ministry of Mordecai Ham, a young man named Billy Graham is saved. Right? And so then Billy Graham becomes a preacher I don't need to tell you about who has preached to an estimated 2.2 billion people in his ministry. And uh, one day uh, in the 1950s, there's a young girl who is reached through the ministry of Billy Graham. Her name was Brenda Gwynn, and you guys may not have heard of Brenda Gwynn. Brenda Gwynn was saved under the ministry of Billy Graham. It goes back to Mordecai Ham, that goes back to Billy Sunday, to Chapman, to Meyer, to Moody, to this Sunday school teacher. Brenda Gwynn grows up to marry a man named Roger Green. Brenda's my mom. And Brenda one day knelt with me as a little boy and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I prayed to receive Jesus that day through a woman who was a part of a series of redemption that, that God used to reach me. Here's the story, guys. Our Redeemer doesn't just redeem us for us. He uses our redemption to reach the lives of people who need to be redeemed. And so here's my question. Who might God want to redeem through you? Who might God want to redeem through you? Who's your five? Those people who are far from God but near to you where you live, work, and play that God's calling you to live intentionally toward for the sake of demonstrating and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't redeem you only for you. He desires to use your redemption like he used Ruth's to redeem someone else. Guys, Boaz was an, was an incredible man. He was a good redeemer, but Jesus is better. He fulfills the law on your behalf, making you right with God. He takes on broken and hurting people 
like you and me and never runs out of patience with us and then uses his redemption in our life to redeem those around us. And so as we're closing today, I just wanna give a couple of points of application. First, are you trusting in Jesus as your redeemer? Have you acknowledged that you've broken the holy law of God, you've sinned against God and you can't make yourself right? That's why God gave us Jesus. So I encourage you to call on Jesus Christ to save you, confessing your sin, acknowledging his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his power to be raised to new life again in the resurrection. I encourage you to call on Jesus to save you. Our pastors are gonna be down front in just a moment. We would love to pray with you about your relationship with Jesus as your redeemer. Some of you also, you just need to be reminded that Christ is not running out of patience with you. So don't run out of faith in him. I wanna encourage you, even where you are, would you just recommit a heart of faith to trust in Jesus and to praise him for his perfect patience in your life? And then would you also ask that he would, he would give you grace to live intentionally towards someone today, someone this week, so that your redemption could be about someone beyond you. He would give you an opportunity to demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? We're gonna have a moment of reflection and prayer. And I'm actually gonna go ahead and ask our pastors to come down front. So if our pastors would just go ahead and come down front. I know that some of you would like to pray with a pastor before you go. Some of you are struggling with patterns of sin in your life and you'd like to have a pastor pray with you that you continue to trust in Christ and depend on his patient grace and kindness. Some of you may want to talk with a pastor about your relationship with Jesus as redeemer. You know you're broken, but you don't know what it means to be saved. And, and then some of you may just want to spend, you may want to spend time just kneeling here at the front praying for the people in your life that you would ask God to redeem through you, your five, your family, the people around you. We're going to have a time of, of response and prayer, of invitation. But before we do, I just want to lead you in prayer. Father, would you stir our hearts to respond with faith in the great work of our Redeemer, Jesus. God, I pray that you'd allow us to see and rejoice in the fact that Christ is just better. He's just better. In every way, he is incredible. Lord, I I pray for those who don't know that they are saved from the penalty of their sin. I ask that they would not leave this place today without the knowledge of Christ as Savior and Lord. And and Father, I pray that you would encourage those who've been struggling in their own doubts and depression to see that you're filled with patience and kindness toward broken people like us. And Lord, would you lead us to the lost, those who are in need of redemption. Give us boldness to demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus to them. Lord, we love you, we need you, and we praise you for Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.